From Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C., this is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk highlights Hudson's work to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In each episode, we examine, in depth, a specific policy issue that affects the United States and our relationship with the world. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you like us, rate us. In our last episode, I spoke with Hudson Senior Fellow Richard Weitz, whose work focuses on nuclear nonproliferation and nuclear security. Building on that conversation, and to give a frontline perspective, in this episode of Policy Talk, Hudson Senior Fellow Rebecca Heinrichs sits down at the State Department for a conversation with a Hudson Institute alum and now a key leader of the United States nonproliferation efforts, Assistant Secretary of State Chris Ford. Dr. Ford was sworn in as the leader of the State Department's Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation in January of 2018. Before that, he served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation at the National Security Council at the White House. Dr. Ford has a long history in national defense and nuclear nonproliferation policy, previously serving as a senior staffer in the United States Senate and in senior roles in the State Department from 2003 through 2008, including being named the U.S. Special Representative for Nuclear Nonproliferation in 2006, where he was responsible for U.S. diplomacy with respect to the Treaty on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons. From 2008 to 2013, Dr. Ford was a senior fellow at Hudson Institute before returning to Congress to serve on multiple Senate committees as a senior staffer. Rebecca Heinrichs is a senior fellow here at Hudson who provides research and commentary on a range of national security issues and specializes in nuclear deterrence, missile defense, and counterproliferation. Rebecca served as an advisor on military matters and foreign policy to Representative Trent Franks, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and helped launch the Bipartisan Missile Defense Caucus. She is a well-known analyst and commentator on national security issues, appearing frequently on Fox News and other major media outlets. She holds a Master's of Arts degree in National Security and Strategic Policy from the U.S. Naval War College. She also graduated with highest distinction from its College of Naval Command and Staff, receiving the Director's Award for Academic Excellence. She received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Ashland University in Ohio. And now, Rebecca's conversation with Dr. Ford. We're here uh, today with Assistant Secretary Christopher Ford. Thank you for joining us. Great pleasure. Um, what I'd like to do is, is sort of just generally talk about how your bureau in particular fits into the larger uh, context of the administration's um, intent to re-engage in great power competition. So um, if you could just talk to us a little bit about um, what your bureau's priorities are and how it fits into that larger picture. Sure, happy to. It's, uh, um, well, it's obviously a complicated and challenging world out there right now. Um, through the, the lens of my particular bureau's role in, in, in all of the swirl of how we are trying to, to answer the challenges of an increasingly competitive global environment, um, we are engaged in trying to answer some of the challenges that that environment presents us, both in terms of what you might call uh, near-peer uh, competitors, uh, Russia and China, uh, obviously, um, but, but also in terms of uh, uh, meeting the challenges presented by competitive strategies adopted by states with more of a regional ambition. You know, Iran's efforts to create a sort of a hegemonic 
domain in the Middle East, for instance, uh, North Korea's efforts uh, to, uh, to assert itself and carve a position, a destabilizing position for itself out of Northeast Asia. Uh, those are also part uh, of, of, uh, of the challenge here. And uh, we try in our various ways um, at my particular bureau, the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, uh, to address those um, through, through various means. Um, with respect to the North Korean and Iranian challenges, um, this is actually a fascinating time in part because we are at the same time trying to sort of squeeze and pressure and give incentives to uh, uh, the North Koreans, of course, to, to reach the kind of uh, comprehensive deal that Secretary Pompeo and the President have uh, talked about and which uh, they're working to, uh, to create through their engagement with the North Koreans right now for the you know, final and fully verified denuclearization. Um, of North Korea, as, as, they, as was agreed in Singapore by Chairman Kim there. Um, that's a two-pronged effort. We're simultaneously negotiating with and making sure that we do everything possible to keep the pressure on the North Koreans uh, in order to help incentivize reaching the kind of solution that it is necessary to reach there. Um, and we're doing, in a sense, by analogy, something of the same thing with the Iranians, um, hoping to be able to negotiate with them, as Secretary Pompeo has set, set out. Uh, in his speech at Heritage Foundation on the 21st of May. So we're simultaneously trying to squeeze and negotiate with two rogue regimes at the same time. Um, and we're working very hard. Uh, certainly that is a whole of government effort. It's not just my bureau by any means, but we are trying to provide support for that larger effort as best we can. Um, we are also continuing to, uh, well, one of our, the new tools that, we, uh, that we're using is, is actually the Russia sanctions legislation that was passed by Congress last year, um, the so-called CATSA. Act. It's the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act of 2017. Um, and we, in my bureau, we administer a particular piece of that that has to do with using, uh, using sanctions to help unpick Russia's strategic relationships around the world that it has built through arms transfer relationships. We mm -hmm. think it is important, and certainly Congress felt it extremely important, to, uh, to use these tools to try to deny the Russian war machine, the revenues that it gets from those kinds of arms engagements, um, and the strategic advantage that it seeks to cultivate and to, to maintain uh, and to increase with, uh, with the use of those tools. So you know, through trying to get Russia's arms partners out of the business of being Russia's arms partners around the world, we're you know, playing a role in this broader competitive strategy with respect to, uh, to Russia, just as we are working on controlling technology transfers as best we can. The, the non-proliferation business is, uh, is in important ways, but not certainly not exclusively about keeping uh, dangerous technologies out of the hands of terrorists. It's also about keeping, uh, well, reducing the degree to which state adversaries can turn to sophisticated tools in ways that in threaten the American people and our interests around the world. Uh, so we're trying to do all these things at the same time, and it's enormously challenging, but it's also fun and exciting and rewarding and uh, um, it keeps us plenty busy. I'm sure it does. If I could press on a little bit, to the extent that you can, because I think a lot of uh, a lot of people might not not be familiar with Russia's engagement in in the um, you know in proliferating. And uh, can you talk? Can you can you press down a little bit and just explain to what you can to what we know what they have been doing and what is some of this sort of um, malicious behavior that has been going on and that you actually are trying to roll back. Can you give sort of regional examples, specific examples? Well, I mean, our, our focus is in particular upon Russian arms sales. And, and I don't want to suggest that Russia has been a proliferator in the sense that some others over time have been proliferators uh, from the WMD perspective. Uh, that has been historically one of the areas in which we have a, a 
pretty significant shared strategic interest with, uh, with Moscow. Indeed, this is actually the 50th anniversary of the opening for signature of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. And uh, we actually just had a conference on that a couple of weeks ago here in Washington at the State Department. Um, you know, and, and that's actually an example of how it is that Washington and Moscow have been very successful for a very long time in working together against the spread of specifically nuclear weapons technology. Now, when it comes to other technologies, that is not always such a happy story. Um, there's obviously an ongoing chemical weapons problem uh, in which the Russians are engaged in protecting and you know, uh, protecting their Syrian proxy from its, uh, from accountability for its atrocities uh, with the use of chemical weapons, um, and of course the use of chemical weapons directly itself um, in the in the recent UK case in Salisbury, uh, the ramifications of which are still spinning out um, in, in in terribly tragic and unfortunate ways there. Um, the proliferation of advanced conventional weapons technologies around the world has been a major challenge that the Russians have created for the rest of the international community, and that's one of the things that we uh, have been told by Congress and are working very hard to try to address uh, by using the threat of sanctions uh, to help, uh, as I said before, uh, re reduce those ties. Um, so so these are, there are multiple pieces to the puzzle. Uh, but you know, I just wanted to distinguish between different types of technology and, and make the point that while we are working very hard to counter Russia's malign activities in certain areas, there are remain areas in which it is still very possible for us to have a cooperative relationship based upon shared interests. And so doing those things at the same time and weaving together the, the competitive and the cooperative aspects of uh, U.S. foreign policy there is one of the interesting challenges uh, that we face. And that is something that the president has mentioned a couple different times as a particular area of cooperation with the Russians is on the area of um, of uh, nonproliferation. So that is that, that is interesting. Um, so you've talked a little bit about some of the destabilizing behavior that that Russia has been engaged in, and your mission and your intent to to counter that. How are those efforts going? Well, I can only speak for our own particular slice of it, but as I mentioned. Um, one of the things that has fallen to us is to, to implement a particular section of the CATSA legislation that aims at uh, um, undermining Russia's strategic relationships that it builds through arms transfers. And we've actually, through our diplomacy in that respect, uh, already had, I mean, this has only been a few months we've been implementing this, uh, we've already had a fair amount of success. Um, it is a little bit difficult to talk about um, for you know, political reasons you can imagine uh, in terms of our diplomatic relations with other countries, but on the whole, we, uh, we understand there to have been something on the order of $10 billion worth of Russian arms transactions that would otherwise have been in progress that have been turned off as a result of our outreach using the tools that Congress gave us uh, in order to do exactly this sort of thing. So we've already had, even in this short period of time, uh, what we view as a remarkable degree of success in uh, putting a dent in Russia, Russia's future arms revenues um, and in um, making it much more difficult uh, for Moscow to build the kind of strategic relationships that it hopes to get out, uh, out of its arms transfer policy. So this is already becoming uh, something of a success story, and the details are difficult, as I said, to, to discuss, but uh, we're pretty excited about it, and there, I can assure you, is more to come. Well, $10 billion in just a few short months, that is remarkable. I, North Korea, my, I, I am curious about that, um, and you mentioned that you're simultaneously working on not only, you know, diplomacy, so you're with an open hand, but also pressuring, keeping the pressure on there as well, simultaneously doing that with Iran. Um, do you see, is there a connection between the two? 
um, in particular on the area of non-proliferation, so that you can kind of see that, you know, as we as we pressure North Korea here, there is an effect over here with the Iranians, or they're watching. You know, a lot of people say, you know, to what degree does our policy towards North Korea affect how the Iranians are viewing our policy there, and vice versa? Vice versa. Well, I, I do think that historically it, it, it has been, and presumably continues to be the case, that proliferators sort of watch how others deal with proliferators. Um, they learn from each other's playbooks, they try to take advantage from it, and hopefully we can work that learning the other direction as well. Um, I, I won't get, I, I probably shouldn't get much into the North Korea case in particular because Secretary Pompeo is deeply engaged in uh, in all of that and it is very sensitive and so I will uh, I will not uh, get in his way. Um, but I do think it's, you know, I think what we have made very clear sort of in the aggregate as an administration is that we are firmly committed to good deals that meet proliferation challenges in enduring and, and comprehensive ways. Um, we are not so interested in deals that fail to do that, as we showed with Iran. Um, but uh, you know, our commitment uh, to pursuing ones that really do answer the mail um, in bringing challenges of this sort uh, under control. And you see this with our commitment to, to our commitment to negotiating with Iran. We've, Secretary Pompeo has said this very, very clearly. Um, we have asked a great many things uh, of the Iranians. Um, in, you know, Secretary Pompeo laid out, I believe there are 12, 12 points of things that, uh, that relate to Iran reigning in its malign behaviors across uh, a whole range of issue areas. Um, that sounds like a long list, but at the end of the day, it is really just asking Iran to behave as a normal state. Normal states don't actually send uh, money and arms to terrorist proxies uh, in, in, in their neighbors, uh, that, that affect their neighbors. They, they don't develop increasingly long-range and sophisticated ballistic missiles that threaten other countries. They don't send that missile technology to other, other places. They don't you know, spend decades trying to develop nuclear weapons and then pretend that they never did, uh, hide that from the world and then pretend uh, when they are caught red-handed and keeping legacy information around for obvious intent to reconstitute that weapons program at some point. They, they don't pretend that this all didn't happen. These are all behaviors that normal states don't do. So really all that we're asking, although it's a long list of points, all we're asking is for Iran to behave like a normal state. In return for which, we have been very clear that we are willing to treat them as a normal state. And Secretary Pompeo has made it very clear that things like diplomatic relations are actually on the table. Uh, things like lifting our primary embargo against Iran are actually on the table. Um, this is a, you know, in return for them acting normal, we will treat them normally. And that means, in a sense, embracing them in a way that the United States has never been willing to, you know, since the Islamic Revolution there, uh, has not been willing to contemplate. So, so this is a very bold approach. It is a demanding approach. It is one that will take time and effort and diplomatic engagement. And we're uh, very deeply engaged in that. And part of that engagement involves reimposing sanctions. Um, to incentivize Iran to come back to the table for those kinds of discussions in ways they have not yet shown any interest in doing. So this is not an easy thing, um, but it's a bold thing that we think has at least the potential to, uh, to comprehensively answer these, these challenges. And I think that message, I hope, is one that the North Koreans will be listening to because we are both sincerely committed to working out a comprehensive deal and committed to making sure that in response for doing the things that they need to do in order to, to rein back in those threats. Uh, the, you know, the regime in question, you can sort of play the Mad Libs game, you know, fill in the rogue regime here, um, you know, is in fact able to, to envision a prosperous future for itself engaged with the rest of the world in ways that have not previously been contemplated. So, so you know, 
we'll see where it goes. But uh, but this is a this is a very forward leaning and bold strategy in which we're engaged, and uh, we're trying very hard to make it work. And I and I would just say, as somebody who studies this issue issue and is is watching it um, from from my perspective as a national security analyst from Hudson Institute, is it, it is clear to me that the Trump administration is taking a very, you, you keep calling it a bold approach, it's very different than the previous administration um, in, in very important respects. Uh, for instance, towards Iran, it was sort of, you know, we'll give you, we'll treat you like, um, like a normal country in the hopes that you will then respond like a normal country. We've reversed the sequence. I think you, that's important. That's exactly right. The, the sequence is reversed. And um, it, where now it's no, we, we are perfectly willing to embrace you as long as you meet the, this criteria, which it should not be that hard. This is just what, what is necessary to be treated like a normal international And if, doing, if, do, if doing those things is actually hard for you, then shame on you. <laughs> and, and we're not there yet. And then you don't, and then you don't, you don't deserve, you know, you don't, you're not entitled to the privilege of being treated like a responsible, normal international player. Bingo. Um, and, and then I would just point out too, I have actually seen that play out um, even in the North Korean context where it, it, it seems to me that that the administration's diplomatic approach from the State Department side is, it's not that the, the um, um, legitimacy has been granted, it's just being held out in plain terms of something that is achievable once the North Koreans meet the set of... You know, and, I think uh, it's important that they see the light, the, the availability of a light at the end of the tunnel, um, but this is not necessarily a light. Um, one has to go through the tunnel to get to the light, and the tunnel, you know, that light is not coming towards them, they need to walk towards it, um, but it is certainly there, and we want to make sure that that's clear too. Um, getting back now to kind of um, the, the the general theme of great power competition, and when we talk about how the Trump administration is taking this uh, this new approach, um, I'm curious as to to how you see because you were at the National Security Council before this, so you've you've had other jobs. Um, um, in the government, and so you've seen uh, 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 you've seen a change in in how the U.S. government is approaching um, our foreign policy and our grand strategy. Is it because the United States had bad assumptions, false assumptions about the threats facing the United States, or rather, is it because things have changed? It's a global, dynamic environment, and so now we see a rise of China and Russia. Maybe we're a little bit late in the game of recognizing it, but it was slow coming. Or, or should we have? Are we are we behind partly because of it's our own fault, and we should have started this 10, 15, 20 years ago? Well, my own feeling, Rebecca, is that it's some of both. Um, I do think we uh, um, we relaxed. We took what I've referred to as sort of a strategic. Uh, Strategic holiday, if you will, um, in the particularly in the in the early years of the post Cold War period, um, I think we we came out of these decades of struggle that we had had, the competitive struggle with the Soviet Union, and to some degree worrying about China for a long time as well, um, and we relaxed. We were in an extraordinarily, I mean, frankly, it was a fantastic position to be in in the world. Uh, you know, we we saw the environment around us, perceived it to be a low threat environment, and then I think falsely concluded that it was likely to remain that way uh, uh, for you know, in an enduring way. Um, that was unrealistic, and we're I think we're paying some of the price for that. But I mean, it was it wasn't a crazy assumption at the time. The permanence was, I suspect, and, and some of us were complaining, were warning about this all along. But um, the the threat environment wasn't very challenging. We were in you know what. Uh, you know, 
some have called this sort of the, the hyperpower um, or the, you know, the unipolar position, if you will, for at least a while. Um, the Soviet Union, the Soviet Empire had, had fragmented. The Soviet Union itself had imploded and fragmented into a kaleidoscope of states, uh, some of which were, uh, you know, understandably rather hostile to, um, uh, to, to the center that remained. Um, we didn't feel much threat from that arena after a long period of time in which we had. Um, Russia itself, uh, in terms of its internal governance and, and economic dynamics, was just a, a sort of a catastrophic mess. Um, and that didn't concern us much anymore. And the contrast was quite striking. Uh, China was still relatively weak at that time. Indeed, in the early 1990s, they seemed more concerned with oppressing and, uh, you know, indeed massacring Tiananmen in, in 1989, uh, massacring their own citizens rather than uh, building up a strategic threat to us. And I don't think uh, our leaders took it uh, nearly as seriously as they uh, as they should have. But but the threat environment was, you know, was low, at least for a while. And we were thinking more in terms of peace dividends and, uh, you know, engagement with these powers. And it was, you know, it was a non-threatening context in which we could make our, especially in the Chinese context, we could, you know, our businesses could make some money, uh, our consumers could save some money um, by taking advantage of inexpensive, uh, inexpensive, less expensive goods as a result of China's export-led growth. Uh, and we didn't perceive, some did, but for the most part, we, our political culture and our national elites did not perceive the kind of threat that would lead them to question whether all of this embracing um, of those uh, you know, former adversaries was, was quite as good an idea as they thought. The problem was, of course, that uh, that very position of U.S. dominance that uh, made us feel so complacent was a position that helped spur those very other powers to new efforts at competitive strategy to respond. Uh, they didn't think this was, uh, you know, they were, they were dead set on ensuring that our position of, of unipolar dominance was not an enduring one. That was the point for them. This was, you know, what, what led us to complacency goaded them into new efforts. And they spent the ensuing years working very hard to develop competitive strategies against us and not doing too bad a job of it. And now we have to reckon with those consequences. And let's, let's talk, if we, if we may, a little bit about China then in this context. Um, because I agree with you, it seems it seems as though because trade has become such an important thing, especially with China, that that perhaps we thought that that might help carry the day. That we that we're so sort of interlocked economically and dependent on one another um, in a way that that perhaps all these other areas wouldn't wouldn't rise to the problem that they are militarily, diplomatically, et cetera. Can you talk about some of the areas where you have found? in the context of your bureau and your mission, your sort of piece of the pie here, um, the, the challenges with, with China in particular, and then also areas in which you were finding some positive areas of where you're cooperating. Sure, and I think that's an important piece, and I mentioned that a little bit in the Russia mm -hmm. context, and I think it's, if anything, even more true in the Chinese context, in the sense that you know, our conceptual template for how to deal with great power competition, at least you know, sort of in within you know, living memory in the United States, is one that is essentially purely competitive. We have sort of the former Soviet Union in mind. And, and that was, at some level, I mean, it certainly was an enormously complex and incredibly dangerous situation. Um, but it was also pretty clear that that was a principally adversarial relationship. There were not meaningful cooperative elements for the most part, with the exception of some of these like, strategic sorts of things that, that I mentioned before, nonproliferation and, and in the arms control arena. Um, with Russia today, and especially with China, we have a little bit of a new challenge insofar as there are, we are again waking up 
to the degree to which there are powerful competitive strains here that we absolutely need to deal with as a matter of national priority. And you can see us in this administration articulating that in the national security strategy, in the national defense strategy, in the, national, in the, the nuclear posture review, um, all of which are quite forward-leaning in, in making the point that this is, in fact, an era of great power competition uh, in which we need to be thinking. Uh, competitively in ways that we haven't been very clear uh, or, or self-aware about for a long time. Um, so all of that is true, but at the same time there are also powerful co cooperative elements that still need to be managed. Um, and we don't really have a conceptual template for how to do both of those things at the same time. Um, we're to some degree making this up as we go along. Um, as a political culture, um, I do think it's really critical that we be alive and articulate and honest and clear-eyed about the fact that there are these competitive pieces. I think we need to acknowledge that if we are to come up with a good answer for how to do these things at the same time. We need to make sure that we don't lose sight of the cooperative strains because it is very important that we manage those as well. There are areas on which we can find common ground and work together very well with both, uh, both Beijing and Moscow. We need to do that, but we can't let the importance of doing that blind us to the importance of being competitive where we need to be competitive as well. That's the interesting twist right now, I think, at the sort of the macro level. Um, and, and through my own particular little slice of this at, uh, at the ISN Bureau, uh, we're trying to contribute to, to you know, frankly, both of those um, as best we can. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges with, with China in, in, this, in this, you know, um, how are they competing with you? What are the challenges? What, what do we perceive as um, threats to the United States and stability, especially in its particular region? Well, I'll just give just one illustrative example. There are, of course, many. Um, but one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing um, in my neck of the woods at the State Department is building, I don't know what you would want to call them, sort of figuratively speaking, building barriers to technology movement. Uh, not in a bad way. I mean, the, the movement of technology and, and the spread of, of open economics has been of such powerful benefit to so many populations around the world for so long. Um, we certainly, you know, there's you know, the objective is not to get in the way of any of that, but there are certain technologies that frankly shouldn't flow super freely, and I refer to sort of the technologies that facilitate advanced conventional weapons, most obviously the technologies that facilitate weapons of mass destruction and delivery system development. Um, you know, making sure that those things don't just flow wherever people sort of feel it expedient to have them flow. That's a big part of our mission. And so we build these sort of metaphorical barriers. We help countries uh, improve their export control regimes, to monitor their borders, to prevent nuclear smuggling, to, uh, to do a bunch of different things like this. We do end use. We, we help in improve um, export control and use verification and all these sorts of things. All of that is a really important piece. They, those are important pieces to making sure that uh, dangerous things don't get into the wrong hands. Um, the challenge we face with China is that its approach to the uses of technology, you know, its own uses of technology, are ones that are absolutely antithetical to the basic concepts around which we build that edifice of regime norms and best practices and behaviors and this, the metaphorical barriers to which I referred a moment ago. Um, the, the, in recent years in particular, the Chinese government has established what is what it itself calls a, a, a system of military-civil fusion. Uh, and that is to say, this is actually a process that's been led personally by Xi Jinping um, and about which Chinese sources in the open literature are quite unapologetic. This is not something that is concealed at all. Um, it is a process whereby they systematically set out to break down internal barriers to the movement of technology between the civilian sector and the military mm -hmm. sector and within those sectors. So that, in effect, if 
a technology that is useful in any way to civilian industry, some kind of strategic advantage in civilian industry exists anywhere in China, or I should say this carefully, or China has access to, by means fair or foul, um, from the outside, you know, that will be moved to where it is most expeditiously usable. Uh, and that's true with the military as well. And so what this means is that China is, has announced basically publicly that it is willing and will in fact, and does intend to m make available any technology of access to China available to its military for purposes of building up its strategic power in ways that it very clearly and very explicitly ties to the achievement of the so-called China dream that Xi Jinping has talked about. Um, it's part of its strategic objectives for the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party's coming into power. Uh, by 2049, they have all sorts of global ambitions and are very, pretty unapologetic about their desire to carve out for themselves a, a, a geopolitical role that is, uh, that they view at least, as not being remotely consistent with us continuing in the United States to have the geopolitical role that we have had. They aim to displace us in important ways uh, and, and revise the international system and the system of, of order to which we've all become accustomed for so many decades. Um, and moving technologies from the civilian sphere into military applications is a huge part of this. Uh, and they basically announced that uh, they don't, you know, they don't care about all this system of barriers and you know, this is not a system in which commitments to, um, to civilian use of any particular type of technology will be honored. They're basically telling us in advance that they won't be honored um, if it is useful for things to be used in military context, they will be. And we need to be recalibrating how we think about technology transfers um, in light of this knowledge. Um, there's a lot to be had, a lot of benefit to be had from continuing to engage with China. Of course, the, this is where the co cooperative and the competitive piece come together. Um, you know, there is enormous benefit still to be had from our deep you know, scientific, technological, and economic engagement with China. But we need to do that in ways that are alive to these kind of military-civil fusion challenges, um, because they have not been alive to that very well in the past, and this is something that we're working on very hard. Great. Um, and then um, the last one, and, you, and you've touched a little bit about this already in, in various context of our of our conversation here but right now just at, at this at this sort of stage in the game what what are you've already talked broadly but in specific terms you, your your particular priorities um, that you're tackling sort of like now in the day-to-day -day. like you're gonna leave here and you're gonna go to a meeting and what are the things that are your priority practically speaking that you are trying to knock out and make some headway um, and that you're hopeful that you will in terms of, of non-encounter proliferation priorities. Um, I, I would uh, uh, repeat to you what I told my staff when I showed up. I had an all-hands meeting with the, with the entire bureau and laid out uh, sort of the, my points of emphasis. And, and they're very consistent with what we've been talking about here. I mean, it, it, is, it is threefold, basically. I mean, there's the there's the sort of non-proliferation and counter-proliferation piece. It is the, as I said before, sort of squeezing and negotiating with um, both North Korea and Iran at the same time, with the objective of using counter-proliferation pressures or you know, using those pressures to, to drive towards comprehensive solutions that, that provide answers uh, to the threats presented by those countries in comprehensive ways that, that simply haven't been tried before. Um, so 
absolutely 100%, 24 7, 365, dedicated to trying to support those processes, uh, support the USG, support the President and Secretary Pompeo in trying to drive in that direction. So that's first and foremost. I mentioned the, the Russia sanctions, the CATSA piece. That is a piece that has fallen to our Bureau. It's not a traditional non-proliferation role for us, but it is a very important piece of this, and that fits with what I think of as the international security prong of the International Security and Non-Proliferation so-called so Bureau. Um, and uh, you know, it is part of our mission to, to work to, you know, in effect, uh, unwind Russia's destabilizing strategic relationships around the world uh, that they have helped build through arms sales. And so we're working very hard at doing that. That is also a huge priority for this Bureau. Um, and then we have our day job. Um, all the other normal things that go on, not always in the front page headlines, but you know, you know, no one wants terrorists. You know, uh, this is a bipartisan priority for years and years. No one wants terrorists to acquire weapons of mass destruction. We have to continue to be diligent and forward-leaning and making sure that all the programming we do, all the diplomatic engagement that we do, uh, reinforces those norms, makes sure that all of those things get locked down. The nuclear safety and security piece, the counter-nuclear smuggling work, all of those things are also in our job jar, and we are absolutely remaining firmly dedicated to that, which is why, unfortunately, we have had to ask the, the, the good folks in my bureau to basically be doing a marathon sprint um, for the last few months. All of these things have to happen and have to be done uh, at the same time. And uh, as I say, it's very exciting, but uh, um, it's keeping us busy. How large is your staff? We have, um, I actually don't know the current numbers off the top of my head, we have uh, a bit under 200 people. 200 people working on this enormous mission. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up that last piece because even though we are back in the game of great power competition, that does not mean the threat from terrorism um, has gone away. Absolutely not. A and so we, we do have to remain vigilant and, and we have to, uh, we have to keep, keep at that. Um, as well, and that's incredibly important. And, and the State Department's role in this is actually quite sort of interesting, right? I mean, we have our own, you know, all these missions are extremely important, but it, it's, it's often overlooked how we as diplomats contribute to doing all this sort of thing. I mean, you've got, you know, people understand, I think, intuitively that when the Department of Defense goes out and ha you know, exercises influence on behalf of American national interests in the world, you know, it operates on, uh, you know, it operates with things in a very concrete way, right? I mean, you know, ships and aircraft, and it runs on, petrol and ammunition and uh, logistics and so forth, um, we have our, a different role. Uh, in, in we, we're diplomats. We are the sort of, um, we operate on, you know, our raw material are sort of you know, airline tickets and face-to-face -face engagement. And we, we are people of uh, an institution of narrative and persuasion. Um, and, uh, you know, and we are the sort of international evangelists of moving these agendas forward. And in terms of great power competition, we are the face and the, uh, uh, as I say, the, the evangelists for trying to build better answers to these problems. Because this is not just a U.S. problem alone. If you have, you know, sort of the, I think what H.R. Uh, McMaster used to call the revisionist powers of the Eurasian landmass, um, trying to revise the international system in ways more congenial to their interests and detrimental to ours. Uh, it's not just ours, by the way, of course, because it's American power that for decades has underpinned a system of international order that has been of enormous benefit to people all around the world. And, you know, not incidentally, with some irony, of course, also enormously beneficial to, uh, say, China uh, in creating the environment in which China's economic growth and prosperity in the modern era has been made possible. Um, protecting that is a global agenda. Protecting that system from degradation is a global agenda. And so this isn't just about our policy. It's about bringing others on board 
uh, and making progress in revising competitive approaches around the globe and bringing, you know, bringing like-minded folks increasingly together. And, and we're the sort of persuasive face of trying to, to do that coalition building. And uh, you know, this is only a partly done project. I mean, we ourselves have only just, uh, alas, recently begun to awaken to the need to have competitive strategy in this kind of a way, to, to remember that others have been working very hard while we have been complacent. Um, and you know, we're only now beginning to come up with answers ourselves in light of that new insight and awareness, that reawakening of focus. And we need to bring others along with this. And uh, you know, one needs to acknowledge a problem before one can address the problem. And so part of what we are doing is engaging with others in order to, to spread awareness of the importance of working together on these things. And I think that it's so important too, and it, 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 it really paints a picture of what a, what a paradox it is because we're engaging in this great power competition. In the United States, the president has been clear and it's reflected in those national security documents. It's reflected in, in what the, um, the secretaries say, uh, both Mattis and Pompeo, that and we're not even looking for parity here. We're still looking for strategic superiority. We still, we're not giving up the reins as the world's global um, leader and power here. We're just trying to better uh, compete with these other powers that have sort of um, exploited areas where the United States has not been as vigilant as we, as we possibly, as we should have been. This would be easier had we not, I don't want to exaggerate the problem, but we, to some degree we sort of fell asleep at the switch in terms of competitive thinking for a while. Um, and this would be a less demanding challenge had we not uh, backed out of that game for as long as we did. Um, I think there was a bit of a concern, well, there was a bit of a feeling that, well, of course, there were extremely important things to be done in the world for a while. Um, they were not sort of competitive state-on-state um, -state sorts of issues, with the exception of, of rogue regimes and proliferators, to be sure. But in terms of the great powers, um, I think we thought we were out of having to worry about great power competition for, for some time, and that what we were engaged in as a, you know, as a project, as a nation, in foreign policy was largely sort of mopping up operations to, uh, you know, mopping up operations at the end of history so that we could, of course there were critical things to do. We would have to keep proliferators from becoming, you know, extraordinarily powerful and dangerous. You had to, uh, you know, there would be, uh, you know, prevent genocide in some far-flung place here or um, prevent a, you know, a economic breakdown or humanitarian catastrophe in some other place. These are all extraordinarily important things to do, and we spent a couple of decades worrying about them. Then, of course, the issue of terrorism came along, and we absolutely had to act really forthrightly to, uh, to, to meet terrorist threats from international uh, non-state actors that had become terribly, terribly threatening. But we didn't think a lot about great power competition as a thing. And, uh, the, and we're paying the price for having forgotten that. This would be less difficult now if we had remained somewhat more focused upon it as we went along. Um, but can't fix that, but what we can do is do a better job at addressing the threats that face us today, and we're trying to do all these things simultaneously right now. Assistant Secretary Ford, thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you all for listening to this podcast with Hudson Institute. Thanks very much for talking to me. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that informative conversation with Dr. Ford, and I speak for all of us here at Hudson Institute in giving him great appreciation for his time. We also want to thank all of our listeners for downloading our podcast today. Please subscribe and tell your friends about us. And if you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. I'm Brian Blake. Thank you for listening.